You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at InFocus Church. We hope this message encourages you and leaves you feeling challenged to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Dear church, of all the churches I'm writing, you are the smallest and least known, but I still see you because I see everything and no one is insignificant. I see your every action and I see your every thought and motive. There's nothing hidden from my eyes because I watch your every move because I love you. I watch you because of my great love for you. You're doing many amazing things. You love God and you love each other well. You serve, you have faith, you show great patience as well. And on top of that, you're growing in all these areas. What you're doing now is even better than when you started this journey of faith. Well done, church. Love, Jesus. Now let's turn our attention to the text this morning. Revelation chapter 2, last book of the Bible, verse 18. And we're going to read as we continue in our series, Dear Church, the church at Thyatira that John was writing to about the testimony of Jesus, what Jesus sees in this church. And here's it, here it is. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. That's all the good stuff. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you, except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over nations. The one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Lord, I pray that you would illuminate your word today, that you would change us from the inside out, transform us, that we would look more like you as your church. Jesus has his eyes on all seven of the churches that are, the letters are written to in the book of Revelation. And Revelation tells us what Jesus thinks of each church. That's what we're looking at throughout this series. Their sins, like our sins, are rooted in the struggle of walking out our life in the way of the Lamb while living in the hostility and the brokenness of Babylon. Why? 
Because in their case, Babylon, which is really a name for, if you will, uh, uh, the world system, the system of the world opposed to God, the Babylon or the world was infecting the churches in such a way that they were taking their eyes off of Jesus and becoming more like the world than more like their Savior. I started off a moment ago by just reading a letter, if you will, and paraphrasing the glowing affirmations that the church of Thyatira was getting from Jesus. And it's pretty impressive, actually. Like, I would love for Jesus to say this about us, to say this about you and I. Because if you remember over the past few weeks, if you've been here, and if not, I'm about to tell you, these letters of the seven of them, I think five of them, they all follow the same pattern of of trying to do some spiritual instruction, if you will, this three-part spiritual direction to train God's people to walk faithfully in honoring Christ while still living in Babylon. To walk faithfully honoring Jesus as believers while still being in a world that is broken and hostile and has hatred towards one another, as we can easily see by just looking at a little bit of a newsreel for just a second every day. The brokenness that surrounds us. How do we live faithfully and persevere in the midst of all of that and stay faithful to Jesus? And so all this letter was not written directly to us. Specifically, it was written to this church in Thyatira. So although it wasn't written specifically to us, it is for us today in God's word. So we're able to see, as this scripture says, what the spirit of the Lord is saying to us as a church today. Through each of these seven churches, we're trying to see what is the spirit of the Lord saying to us. So let me recap the three-part direction that Jesus gives through John in the book of Revelation. It usually starts with an affirmation, like I just read at the beginning. Good job. Here's the things that you're doing well. We love to to be able to affirm people. Secondly, it goes to a correction. And then lastly, it closes, the letter does, with a motivation. How many of you know, we've said this, when you receive correction, you kind of want a little bit of motivation as to why and how to do what you've been corrected to do. We don't like just to stay at correction. We need the motivation. And also, actually, to receive the correction, it's great to start with affirmation. God knows this. He knows how we're built. He knows our frame. So he gives affirmation at the beginning. You're doing this well. Nevertheless, here's the correction that I have against you, and here's the motivation of why you should repent and live this way. So Thyatira kind of had some glowing affirmations. That's what I just read a moment ago. It's like, if we're being honest, this was really good stuff. Like the Augusta Magazine would have voted them most best place to worship in the CSRA. Which they kind of do that. And they're like, who votes on these things? I've never voted for that in my life. Because I'd say here. But we've never won. So that's just a rabbit trail that I won't chase. But the reality is, is they would get voted the best. They were doing a great job. They had a, a good reputation in the community. And I hope that the final affirmation that they got is one that can be said of us at InFocus Church, that their latter works were actually greater than their earlier former works. They were growing in doing well. That we would, as a church, grow in our love. That we would not regress with love in our hearts for the community and the people around us in our city with tangible acts of love flowing out of us to meet the needs of people in the name of Jesus. That we would do well in loving people. I would love for Jesus to say that about us. And that's what he's saying about them. And I would say 
that you all do a phenomenal job of that. Even as I looked at the beginning of Serve Week this week and our neighborhood cleanup that we've been doing now for well over two years and then a, a Serve Project that took place down at St. John's Towers yesterday. And I was just, man, this is beautiful. This is the church being the church with nothing that we're expecting to be given back to us. It's just because we are to love others as God has first loved us through Jesus Christ. And that's fantastic. But they had a good name, Thyatira did. They had a good name because of the love they expressed in their service of others. They had a good name because of their faithfulness to Christ and endurance in difficulty. They were doing orthopraxy, if you will. That's the righteous actions. They, were, they had orthopathy down. They were feeling good about what they were doing. The problem was is that their foundation or their orthodoxy, the righteous teaching and belief, was beginning to crumble. And how many of you know, no matter how many good things you do and how good you feel about it, if it's not built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, it will not last. It won't last eternity And it's actually not going to be doing a whole lot for the glory of God because I'm not really building it on the foundation of Jesus. I'm just doing good things and it's making me feel good. So although we have visible good actions here from the church and and, and Jesus is saying, good job, this is right. This is good, righteous actions. Verse 20 says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, I know there might be a little bit of nervousness as to where in the world I might go with this particular verse. And the reason being is because there has been so much overuse and even abuse with the name Jezebel that it comes with a lot of baggage in the church and in the culture. So let me tell you, first of all, what this verse is not saying. First, it's not saying that any woman who teaches is a Jezebel. It's not saying that. See Deborah, Lydia, Priscilla, Junior, many others throughout church history and church missional movements like Ann Judson, Amy Simple McPherson, Rebecca Proton, and Betsy Stockton. It's not saying that any woman that teaches is a Jezebel. Secondly, this verse is not saying any woman who speaks truth is a Jezebel. And thirdly, it's not saying that there is anything as a spirit of Jezebel. We have to be careful when we interpret and develop a hermeneutic about God's word. That would be an interpretation of God's word, the Bible. Or here's the problem. We'll end up doing harm and damage, in this case, to our sisters in Christ. And that is not the point of the usage of this name. Can I get an amen? I heard one, but I wanted more than that. (laughs) However, this woman, which she was, was a false teacher who was leading God's people astray, leading them into sin, and Jezebel was used to label this woman, probably not her real name, because she is being condemned for her actions in the strongest name that they could give her to let the church know what the problem was. She is a false teacher. She's corrupting the church by whatever she's teaching, and we're not quite sure exactly what that is. She's therefore opposed to God and should not be tolerated because she's causing the church to compromise whatever it is that she's teaching. If it had been a man, they might have called him Ahab. 
The issue isn't male or female. It's biblical and holy or unbiblical and unholy, period. In their context, Jezebel carried as much weight with this audience as if I were to call somebody a Judas today. And if I were to say that, I would say, here's how I'd say it. There's no gender specification. I'd say, man, she's a Judas. I said that, right? Not specifically about any of you. I'm just saying, like, it's not, this name is a proverbial name for wickedness that these people would have understood by their understanding of the Old Testament and the story of Ahab and Jezebel. It was proverbial for wickedness and specifically the wickedness of worshiping God along with other idols and mixing them together and calling it okay. You can't do that. Have you ever mixed things together that shouldn't have been mixed together? I mean, I'm sure we've all done this. We've probably done it like with household items before. Like you're trying to clean your Air Force Ones, you know, and they're white. And you've used every little TikTok concoction that you can think of to get them back to being white. And maybe you say, well, that didn't work, so I'm going to try bleach and vinegar. Okay, well, you just created chlorine gas. Don't do that. You might have some white shoes, but you'll be dead. Less deadly, but still not a good mixture. How many of you every morning pour orange juice into your cereal instead of milk? I hope none of you. Actually, from a dietary standpoint, they say that's awful for you. It, it takes stuff out of the cereal. I don't, because it's acidic. So don't do that. It's a bad mixture. And to say all of that, notice this. They were doing amazing things. Like on their own, they had all these good things that they were doing but not just that, they were growing at it. They were getting better at it. Jesus was saying, you do this better now than you did when you started. But problematically, I have this for problem with you. There's some mixing that's taking place that's about to bring it all down. It is not dealt with promptly and properly. God doesn't allow for unholy mixtures. And anybody who leads us away from holiness as a false teacher, no matter who they are, in the name of Jesus, they lead us away from Jesus, is to be confronted and corrected. So what was Jesus teaching? He was saying, listen, this is going on and this is not okay. And we could ask, as I said a moment ago, well, what was the teaching of Jezebel? Who was she? We don't actually know the exact false teaching, and we're pretty sure, as I said, this wasn't her real name. It was just a name given to her so that everybody know how bad this was. It was proverbial for wickedness. What the letter does tell us is that the church was tolerating a false teacher. It was a teaching of compromise. Contextually at this time, Thyatira was known for its merchants, its crafts, and then they had these things called guilds. Think maybe modern day unions. That's the only thing I could kind of think of that would be a parallel to what this was. That they needed to be a part of this guild or this union to be able to economically survive in Rome. So those who participated in this aspect of the public economic life would risk a substantial measure of their livelihood if they refused to join the trade guilds. The guild meetings, however, were problematic. They included common meals that were dedicated to that, that guild's particular deity, which was not God, idol worship, 
And then usually by the end of these guild gatherings or parties, it would lead to something that was a little bit more excessive like sexual immorality. And consequently, these things would be something, a meal, a celebration that would be off limits to God's holy people or off limits to Christians. People's involvement in these guilds, however, were being justified like this. Well, I I have to make a living. And we understand that kind of thinking. We understand that exact scenario in our context and culture because we even have colloquialisms to affirm that we know what this type of thinking is like. Here, I'll give you one. When in Rome. How about this one? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Really? I mean, it is a company conference. It is all expense paid. We just have to go. It's part of being in this job. It really isn't that big of a deal. And you see, the teaching of this church was accepting something that was tolerating compromise with the culture. Inside of the church, there was a teaching that said it was okay, and they were tolerating compromise with the culture. So that's what the scripture says. Nevertheless, all those wonderful things that you are doing, they were real. They were good. Good name in the community. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate. Let's just stop right there, because that is a fun word in our context, isn't it? Let's tolerate. Let's let's tolerate everything, because we're supposed to tolerate everything, because tolerance in our context today is the answer to all of society's problems. And tolerance in and of itself, however, is not a bad thing. Tolerance can be good in the right place at the right time. But in the wrong place, at the wrong time, it is bad and can produce deadly compromise, much like the mixtures that I talked about a moment ago, And it could cause things to happen that are unholy and don't honor God. And in this church's tolerance, it was happening in the wrong place, tolerating the worship of God mixed with the worship of idols, leading to things that were as ungodly as they could get. And when it comes to who God is and how we worship him, God's word is very clear. There is no ambiguity when it comes to who we worship and how we worship him. That is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. There shall be no other gods before him. There's no one like him. There's no one beside him. We don't mix things together when it comes to God and worship. The reason being is it's not because, yes, the word talks about God being a jealous God and God, but it's because of God's great love for us that he doesn't want your affections going to other places or mixing in with other things that would dilute your pure worship of him. What you continue to tolerate, he knows you will eventually assimilate. I remember years ago when I was teaching a message, I've actually done this on two different occasions with two different scenarios It's like, how much stuff are we willing to allow to mix into the purity of our life? And I said, listen, if I brought this cup of water in here, and then I went into my backyard and got a little bit of my golden doodles poop and just dropped a little bit in there, would you still drink it? How much poop are you willing to have in your water and still drink it? Pastor Brent, I think you just wanted to say the word poop this morning. Well, maybe I did. But the reality is, is what you continue to tolerate 
you will eventually assimilate into your life. So living in Babylon, which is what we are doing, in essence, we're living in this world. And living in Babylon is to live in a place that is constantly anti-God. A life of opulence, a life of, of exploitation, a life of arrogance and pride. And this was constantly, in this case, testing Christians' worship by tempting believers to accommodate themselves in the Roman way of life at the expense of worshiping God one and only wholeheartedly. For a modern context, one cultural commentator said this about the workplace. So let's think about it in this case. Never underestimate the power of the environment you work in to gradually transform who you are. When you choose to work at a certain company, you are turning yourself into the sort of person who works in that company. In this context, these false teachers, and they've been named different things, Jezebel, Balaam, Nicolaitans, these false teachers chose to live comfortably in Babylon, comfortable enough as ideal citizens, socially respectable leaders, well-known and well-liked as people who fit in. But before too long, if we spend all of our time fitting in, and that's what they did, you really do begin to fit in because Babylon has now formed you into being a good Roman at the expense of Jesus forming you into being a good Christian. Who do I look more like? We want to make this a little bit closer to home. How much of our faith ends up being tied to our own nation and its power? Christian nationalism isn't new, and it's not, just not exclusive to the United States of America. Forms of it have been affecting the church since the fourth century, church historians will report. It was Rome, even then, plus the church, a church ruled by the state, a church ruled by the military. Just look at Constantine. And all of these things are something that's mixing an idolatrous mixture that is not pleasing to God. Religious nationalism wants to incorporate Christ into its powers. Idolatries will use religion to sanction the nation. But the dissident disciples, which is what these letters are written to, that's what you and I are today, dissident. There's some dissonance between us and the world because we're disciples of Jesus Christ. Dissident disciples have to daily exercise resistance to not go along with the world to transform us into something that we're not. We want to make this a little bit more uncomfortable, as if maybe you're not already uncomfortable. Remember, this church in Thyatira was flourishing and doing good works. Like, it's not like they were doing bad stuff. They were doing such good works that Jesus was saying, you're actually doing better now than when you first started following me. And here's how that can be a deceptive spot for us. Well, I'm helping so many people. I'm respected in the church. I'm respected in the community. So not only is what I'm doing with the guilds okay, I must be okay. Can I just tell you that we as believers often believe that the blessings of God in our lives is a sign of God's approval over the entirety of our lives, and that's just not true. See, God's blessing on certain areas of your life is not God's approval over every area of your life. He's just a good father who loves to bless his children. And he's not doing so because he's saying, well, I'm going to bless you because you do all these things right and your life is perfect. He just blesses us even when we don't do everything right. One doesn't 
make the other irrelevant. My good works don't make my need for correction irrelevant. And as I said from the beginning of the series, we are always going to need affirmation because encouragement is the oxygen that we breathe and live, but we're always going to need correction as believers in the church if we're going to become more like Jesus. We can receive affirmation, but we always still need correction. Here's how this rationalization may have sounded, and I think this will help us see how easily it can creep into our own lives and our own actions as a church that's doing a lot of good things. That incense burned to Caesar? Nobody's taking it seriously. That sacrificial meat offered to the gods? I mean, it used to be idolatry, but if nobody at my table takes it seriously, is it really idolatry? That letter I get to do business says I was observed sacrificing to Caesar, but wink, wink, we all know I wasn't really doing that, right? And sure, there were prostitutes pretty boldly advertising what they had to offer, but I didn't touch, I just looked. That's righteous self-control, isn't it? Plus, now I got a good business deal, which means more tithe for the church, and I can support even more missionaries. We cannot endlessly justify what God has said cannot be justified. This is tolerance that will change us to look more like the world than more like our Savior. And we were saved to be sanctified to look more like Jesus, not the world around us. Let me personalize it a bit more. No, pastor, it hurts bad enough. No, let's keep going. No matter their gender, these kinds of teachers in the church get us thinking that grace is a license to sin, which Paul said, absolutely not. But these false teachers will get you to rationalize and tolerate and compromise in such a way that we can begin to separate our lives into the sacred and the secular. Well, we aren't legalists here, so go ahead. Get wasted this weekend. Just make sure you sober up before Sunday. We're not judgmental, so go ahead. Sleep with whoever you want to and do whatever you think feels right. We're not Pharisees, so go ahead. Use God's name and put it on whatever you want to put it on and and use it in vain however much you want to as long as it makes you relevant. The government, oh, come on. We all know the government's corrupt, so cheat a little bit on your taxes or don't give to it at all. I mean, I think God understands. Listen, there is no sacred and secular part of your life. It's just your life wholly and entirely offered to God. There are not things in our life that God cares about and things in our life that God overlooks. God cares about every area of your life. Every area of our life is supposed to be committed to him. Our faith in Christ should permeate everything that we say and everything that we do. Abraham Kuyper said this about the lordship of Jesus Christ. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry Mine, and not because he's a megalomaniac, but because he loves you and knows the only way that your life is going to be a life that is abundant and good and righteous and pure and free and not in bondage is if out of his great love, you receive that love and live a life dedicated to him. There's going to be times 
As we've said here before, we spent a whole month talking about how to interact with culture, that we're not asking God to take us out because Jesus sent us in too. So there's going to be times when Christians can accept the existing forms of structures and perspectives and practices in society because of common grace. Not all of it is bad, but there will be plenty of legitimate room to discuss how we are actually going to be sent into, how are we actually going to go into the world and be in the world and not of the world. Christians have to declare at times spiritual war against the values, structures, and the practices of Babylon. Not the people, but the structures and the values and the practices. So when does our toleration threaten our transformation into being more like Christ? When does our toleration lead to an assimilation into the world instead of a transformation into more like Jesus? My wife Carla, who is on this trip, gets up pretty much every single day really early and goes to burn boot camp. I don't. I'm not getting up that early to do anything. Um, but she does, and it's amazing, and I'm proud of her, and it's phenomenal. But every now and then, she said that they would have these things that they will call like a buy-in to get into the workout, which in my mind is ridiculous. Like, I got a workout to go work out? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I'm going home. You know, like, so before you start the real workout, you've got to do the buy-in, and that's 50 burpees. I'm going home. That's, that's, that would be my answer, but they do it. So then I thought, well, what about for me? Like, what, what would I buy in? And then I thought, well, okay, let's talk about fantasy sports, right? Fantasy baseball, fantasy football, fantasy basketball. And, and for a lot of us, when we get into these leagues, there's a buy-in to make sure we're all committed because we're not really gambling, right? To make sure we're all committed to the league. And at the end of the day, though, there might be a buy-in that's steep enough that I go, yeah, I ain't paying that. I'm not getting in that league. Whatever it is for you, here's what I want you to understand, that this price that the church of Thyatira was paying was to be able to fit in. They had a buy-in to fit in. That's what they're dealing with. There was an entrance fee, a price to be paid, to be a part of the business, to be a part of the guild, to have some economic security, if you will, to be accepted, a price for living comfortably while being in Rome and doing as the Romans do. So my question is, what's the price point for us? What's the buy-in that we go, you know what? I'm out. What's the buy-in that's acceptable? What's the buy-in that's too much when it comes to a life of holiness? Because the push towards idolatry and compromise is probably not going to be as obvious as one of these feasts. It might be. So I'm trying to think of some deceptive buy-ins that could try to tempt us to compromise and even be taught falsely in the church to compromise with that would cause us to accept something that we shouldn't. So I'll give you a list. Number one, if the buy-in to fit in with a group or the world requires that I believe that Jesus is only one of many ways to heaven, I'm out. If the buy-in to fit in is to require that I deny any of the essentials of the faith that are necessary for me to be a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm out. If the buy-in to fit in is that my job requires so much of me that I don't spend a biblically responsible amount of time with my family and my church, I'm out. If the buy-in to fit in with a group means unquestioning loyalty for our nation in a way that does not leave room for a prophetic voice to speak righteous truth to power and call every leader at any level to appropriate repentance, I'm out. 
If the buy-in to fit in with a group means exercising my constitutional freedom in a way that overrides the biblical responsibilities I have as a follower of Jesus Christ and not his kingdom, then that's too high of a price. I'm out. If the buy-in to fit in with a group means that I have to be comfortable with derisively mocking or slandering people I don't like on social media instead of speaking grace-filled truth in love, I'm out. If the buy-in to fit in with a group means you want me to minimize or ignore the very issues of justice that God cares about and that I should care about because the Bible demands it, I'm out. If the buy-in to fit in means I have to treat people as if power equals importance, beauty equals value, education equals wisdom, or results equal character, I'm out. If the buy-in to fit in with a group means I have to fight with the weapons of the beast to win the battle of the lamb, I'm out. And then lastly, and maybe this hits home a little bit today on a Sunday like this, if the buy-in to fit in means I have to spend all of my money and all of my resources on things of this world, leaving little or nothing for my church in the kingdom of God, I'm out. Ask yourself, what is the Spirit of the Lord saying to you today? What is it for you? What is it for us that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange? We could boil it down to this in Thyatira. The problem in the church was worldliness, compromise with the world for economic freedom and stability. And what was especially problematic is that somebody in the church was teaching what was likely a sophisticated form of compromise. And we understand that. We've heard it taught. We've taught it to ourselves in our own minds before where we try to do mental calisthenics or biblical justification of why I should be able to do this or why it's okay if I do this this one time or for the rest of my life. And perhaps what she was calling it was the deep things of God, but what Jesus calls it in verse 24 is the deep things of Satan. That's what that is. Now, it's easy to go on a religious tirade at this point, and I just say, you know, hey, let's, let's man up or let's woman up here and let's, let's just do everything that's supposed to be right. Like, shape up or ship out, church. But I'm not going to teach like that because that's not how God responds. Because we could have tried to obliterate all forms of compromise by espousing some sort of legalistic morality, but I'm here to tell you that won't work. There is a way that God does respond that we must take note, and it's so different than me and you. How does Jesus respond to the bad theology and the compromise of the church in Thyatira? We see in verse 21, verse 22, it tells us that Jesus responds with patient justice. First, Jesus says he gave her time to repent. He didn't just come in and and just bring justice. He gave her time to repent. Jesus never rushes to judgment. He gives time to repent. Thank Jesus for his patience and his kindness and his mercy towards us. That he gave us time to repent. And if he gives time to repent, the God of the universe, the Savior of the world, should we not give time to repent as well? One commentary says Jesus still holds out, after all of the stuff that's going on, still holds out the prospect of mercy for this person. And this has to be noted throughout the book of Revelation because we often read it as just this big kind of imagery and confusing book on judgment. And there is severe, severe judgment, but there is always first a prospect of deliverance for those to repent. If I was going to say anything, this book is about repentance. That God is giving us an opportunity 
to repent and don't confuse patience with compromise because the patience is not indefinite but God thank God he is rich in mercy he's abounding in love he desires that we would all receive correction and that we would all repent and walk humbly with him it reminds me of a verse that I memorized years ago from a scripture memory song in the scripture memory song is 2 Peter 3 9 and it says the Lord is not slack as some count slackness I don't know why I like the slack slackness part maybe that's my 80s kind of upbringing or whatever I like that word but in this translation I want you to understand why this is important 2 Peter says the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness instead he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance that's why he tarries that's why he waits that's why he pours out his mercy and his abundant love but make no mistake God's slowness is not his approval of areas in your life that need correction there's going to come a time when justice will come but it's never going to be gratuitous it's never going to be overdone but it's going to come at the perfect time it's going to be fitting justice because it's done by a righteous just God which then leads to the final aspect and we'll close with it this is the motivation like the motivation to persevere because he's writing also he said to those of you who didn't give in to that teaching those of you who in the church that didn't go after that false teaching that didn't give in to the compromise he's saying listen you stand firm stand firm persevere for those who didn't give into the false teaching for those who had to repent he's still saying listen you can do all of these things our motivation however to do that is our hope that we have in christ and that all of god's promises are yes and amen in jesus they're gonna come to pass for those who finish the race of faith and he says this i will give authority over the nations and in verse 28 if you will finish the race of faith i will give you the morning star have you ever heard somebody say they promised them the moon? And they promised them the moon. They're never, they're, they can't even deliver, you know, this. How are they going to do that? And this is literally what Jesus is doing in this last verse when we read about the morning star and, and being able to rule over the nations. He's promising the moon. And how many of you know that what Jesus promises, he does? He never overpromises. He just promises. And so he's promising that... We're going to be able to rule with him, which is just kind of nuts to me. He's the king of the nations. He's going to rule over all the peoples. But he says, I'm also going to give authority over the nations to those who finish the race of faith well. And then the morning star, check this out. The planet Venus has long been known as the morning star because it appears on the horizon just before the sun. Venus is closer to the sun than we are, in case you weren't paying attention in science. And it orbits the sun. So when you see Venus, you know the sun isn't far behind it. It won't be long before the sun comes over the horizon. Day is at hand. So the morning star represents hope for a new day. And that the darkness is soon going to be broken. But what does it mean for us to get the morning star? Revelation twenty-two sixteen says that Jesus himself is the morning star. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David, and I am the bright morning star. The morning star is Jesus Christ himself, which is the greatest possible thing that he could ever promise you and I, his church. He is going to give us 
himself. We're going to see him face to face. We will be his and he will be ours. Our final reward is to be with the Lord. If you think about it, there's coming a day when the morning star is going to come over the horizon and darkness is going to be dispelled forever. And you and I are going to get to see Jesus face to face. That's the motivation. So I'll close with this. In focus, many of you have done well in doing good. Many of you have done well in doing good for a long time. I've seen you serve. I've seen you persevere. I've seen you give generously. I've seen you walk in faith when it seemed like there was no way. And I've seen you fight for unity within diversity as the gospel revealing church that God has called us to be. I know you have good leaders and elders who are protecting this church from false teaching and compromising the gospel in any way. So there's no need to fear. Therefore, let's make sure that we are living lives that are not tolerating any mixture or any adulteration of our lives in any area. Where or if you have, I want you to know that God is loving and merciful and waiting for you to repent, and he is going to pour out his love and forgiveness upon you. For then on, from then on, stand firm, keep doing good, be generous, be one, be on mission to the end, watch God do the miracles, And amazingly, at the end of all of that, we get the morning star. We get to see Jesus face to face. Love Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. Lord, for those that have been a part of the mission of this church for many years. For those that have been a beacon and a light right here in the middle of Evans for 20 plus years. For those that have recently joined and know that this is their spiritual family and they're walking that out with a commitment to you and to one another that is unwilling to compromise with the things of the world. But Lord, at the same time, we are desirous of being sent into this world to bring the truth and the love of Jesus Christ, not to rail against people and things, but to speak the truth of love, who Jesus is, what the gospel means. Lord, we are a going church. We are a sending church. And Lord, we want to continue to do all that you've called us to do. We want to burn brighter as the, the affirmation of Thyatira. We want to do better as we continue to grow than we did when we first started. We want to burn brighter now than when we first started. And whatever situation you may find yourself in, wherever you may be today, where there might be some form of compromise, and you know by the Spirit of God, you know what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to you today. I want you to know there's no condemnation here, but there is the spirit of conviction that God brings because He deeply loves you, and He wants you to be set free today from whatever it is that you've mixed something in with Him. And He wants you to know that He loves you, and He wants you to wholly, wholeheartedly serve and honor and worship Him. Whoever that is today, whoever that is today, would you bring that to Jesus, lay it at His feet, repent, and receive the forgiveness and the love that He so desperately wants to pour out on your life.
And God, I want you to make us holy as you are holy, that we would have a good name in our community. We would have a good name in the world and in our nation around us for the glory of your name. Thank you for listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at InFocusChurch. Church.